You're listening to your weekly constitutional hosted by Professor Stuart Harris, who teaches constitutional law at Lincoln Memorial University's Duncan School of Law in Knoxville, Tennessee. YWC is underwritten by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier. One of the great things about teaching at a law school that's connected to university is that you have all kinds of colleagues who do all sorts of interesting things in a variety of departments. One of those I've come to know just since starting teaching at the Duncan School of Law at Lincoln Memorial University is a fellow by the name of Dr. Charles Hubbard. He's a noted Lincoln scholar, which seems rather appropriate given the name of the university. And I promise you, uh, Charles Hubbard will be on this show before too long, but in the meantime, he uh, alerted me to an opportunity that I took. Uh, the opportunity arose uh, through something called the R. Gerald McMurtry Memorial Lecture of 2016, which occurred in the fall of 2016 at our law school. And it occurred in the person of Dan Farber. Dan Farber is a law professor at Berkeley out in California, and he also is a noted constitutional scholar with an emphasis on Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I spoke to Dan Farber before his lecture because that's how our scheduling worked out, and he gave me a preview of what that lecture was going to be about, and I learned all sorts of interesting things about Abraham Lincoln, the Constitution, and other good stuff as well. When I sat down with Dan Farber, I asked him to start at the beginning to give us a sense of what the Constitution was like before Lincoln, and then he could tell us how Lincoln changed it. Well, the Constitution was, I would say, very much contested. Today, of course, we fight a lot about the meaning of particular parts of the Constitution, but the entire nature of the Constitution was kind of up for grabs with one faction, one, one school of thought, primarily in the South, thinking that the Constitution was more or less like a treaty between independent states something like, I don't know, NATO or something like that today. Like the Articles of Confederation? Like the Articles of Confederation, right, with just some changes. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the other school of thought, which was represented by Lincoln, thought that the U.S. was not just a an association of sovereign states, but it was a real nation, and that citizens of the United States had a direct relationship to the federal government, not just one that went through the state governments. And that had all kinds of consequences for, among other things, the question of secession. Sure. Um, but it also affected the way uh, people thought about the federal government and individual rights and the duty of the government to protect rights. So that was one aspect of it. The other aspect is that the federal government was a much different uh, creature at that time. It was a really tiny organization compared to today. Uh, if you think about the um, White House, for example, Lincoln, uh, when he became president, had two secretaries and a sort of major domo slash appointment secretary. And that was about it in terms of staff. Uh, whereas today we have this not only the West Wing, but, you know, entire buildings outside of the West Wing. Uh, it's funny you should mention that because one thing I do seem to recall from having read Doris Kearns Goodman's book was that one of the first things that happened to Lincoln when he moved in was that all these office seekers just showed up. Oh, yeah. And they just walked in the front door of the White House and then they were lined up in the hallway waiting for him. And he was just situated himself in, in his makeshift office at the end of the hallway and was constantly trying to escape all these people. <laughs> right. Can you imagine today people just walking up to the White House and walking in and standing in line to see the president? Well, that's true. And for a long time, even after that, there was at least a tradition. I know it went through up to Teddy Roosevelt's time where at least once a year, the White House would just be thrown open to the public. And the uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt shook hands with thousands of people just coming in off the street to see the White House and see their president. So, that, you know, it was more intimate well, kind today, of government people back then. occasionally try to do that, but typically the Secret Service intercepts <laughs> yes, they them about, about that. Yeah, yes, they, do. <laughs> they do. In fact, I think they just raised the fence outside the White House, you know, and made it more difficult mm. for people to get in because people still want to do that. But we get ahead of ourselves. Yes. So that so we have this much smaller, much um, smaller, much weaker government. It doesn't do many of the things that it does today. Even things like building roads by the federal government is extremely controversial. 
So the federal government isn't involved in a lot of the kinds of public projects that it does today. The army was tiny. The entire government apparatus was just a, like a miniature compared to today. And the federal government didn't really do much that directly affected ordinary citizens. Uh, almost every part of government they would see would be state or local, and very rarely the federal government. And the president up till that time, uh, the presidency was not the office it is today either. There had been a couple of strong presidents, Jackson, for example, and, and uh, Jefferson. But by and large, presidents tended to function more as the sort of equivalent of a city manager, you know, not, not really making the big policy decisions, but making the trains run on time and carrying out the will of Congress. And, and so it was a very different office. And one of the impacts I think Lincoln had was to really remake our concept of the presidency through the actions he took. And then, of course, there was the formal constitutional change that took place because up until the Civil War, the Bill of Rights only provided protection against the federal government. So whatever your most heartfelt right is today, whether it's uh, abortion or free speech or the right to bear arms, you had no constitutional protection against state governments. Yeah, that's something that, people right. tend to not realize. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I find with uh, even law students every year, it comes as a surprise to them that the First Amendment did not originally protect free speech against state censorship. The uh, uh, right to a jury trial only existed if you were accused of a federal crime. All of those things were entirely federal and protection of individual rights from the state government was just not part of the constitutional scheme, except in a, with a very few minor exceptions. And with the passage of the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, the 14th Amendment, which creates rights to due process and equal protection, and the 15th Amendment, which prohibits voting discrimination, uh, the federal government and the Supreme Court became involved in a big way in policing state governments to deal with discrimination, to deal with civil liberties issues of, of a whole range of, of different kinds, protecting property. I mean, not right. just the sort of liberal end of the spectrum, but all of that today only exists uh, because of those amendments. And, and they really transformed, again, the relationship between the federal government and the state government by putting the, the federal government, both Congress and the Supreme Court, in a much stronger position sure. uh, as against the state governments. And, and so really, in a way, our modern constitution dates from that period. Uh, you can almost see the Gettysburg Address as being kind of a, a turning point where mm -hmm. those ideas are expressed and then later carried into constitutional law conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And then shortly thereafter, the equality appears in the Constitution for the first time. Yeah. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Okay. Let's, I mean, that, that's such an important era that people do call it the second constitutional founding. Some yeah. people refer to it as that. But let's go back again before the Civil War. And so you've got these two schools of thought. One, that's a, for lack of a better term, we'll call it the nationalist view that sees the national government, as you say, something that affects people directly, regulates people directly, that has a role to play. Um, and one, um, that the opposing view, which is that this is a conglomeration of states and that the states preceded and in fact created uh, the national government and therefore in some sense their sovereignty is supreme. Now, before we even get into the, the protagonists in that particular dogfight, I still find it, I, I try, I'm, I'm trying not to engage in presentism here. And I'm trying not to anticipate that ultimately Lincoln's vision did prevail. I still find it remarkable that anybody could even take the state's rights or the state's sovereignty, the Confederation perspective back in that era, because from the very beginning words of the Constitution, we the people, to the supremacy clause of Article 6, I thought those issues had been settled back in 1787, <laughs> but you're telling me that they weren't. I don't think they were completely. My reading of the original Constitution is the same as yours. I think that the uh, nationalist view is, is uh, more faithful to the text and to the history right at the framing of the Constitution. But uh, that being said, within a few years after the adoption of the Constitution, uh, we already see this bit, the same fight breaking out with Thomas Jefferson and others in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, really taking a very states' rights-oriented view. So it, it did remain intensely 
uh, debated. The, the early Supreme Court, I think, was clearly and correctly on the nationalist side, but there was enormous resistance. From Thank some, heaven for John Marshall. But yeah, go on, please. John Marshall, exactly. <laughs> uh, but there, I've often told people who, who describe themselves as states' rights people that, sorry, guys, you lost that argument about 200 years ago, and if you really hate that fact, get yourself a picture of John Marshall and put a target on it and throw darts at it, because he's your guy. Yeah. He's your enemy. Yeah. No, I think I think as a legal matter, that settled it, but not mm -hmm. as a not as a political matter. And the Constitution has mixed features. Mm -hmm. So it has these very strongly nationalist features. And yet at the same time, it has a number of features that are very oriented toward the states. Each state gets two senators, just as they might all have an equal number of ambassadors in, in mm -hmm. the UN or something like that today. There are a number of things that require the agreement of the states. The states control a lot of matters relating to elections. And so there was, I think, a lot of difficulty because the federal government didn't look like a confederation of nations. But it also is quite different from the really unified national governments that you would see in England or France, where you know there was just completely unambiguous that all the authority was with the national government. I do agree with you. I think it takes a, a real effort, a really strenuous effort, to try to explain away the nationalist features of the Constitution if you're on on the states' rights side of things. But People. But there's a lesson in that, isn't there? Yeah. Is, it, you know, our, our political questions, and of course the Constitution is a you know, very political document, it's a product of compromise, are political questions ever really settled? And at least this is an example of it not being settled. I mean, people signed off, and everyone ratified eventually, mm -hmm. um, even the southern states, but there was still strong sentiment, especially in the south, but elsewhere as well, that uh, the states still had a major, major role to play, and that maybe just kind of they were really the locus of power. They were the place where sovereignty really resided. And in fact, you know, just the day-to-day -day politics of that era and the technology of that era militated in favor of that, that perception. Most people didn't even leave their states. Most people, uh, you know, most of the, as you say, the government of their state was much more important in their daily lives. People still identified first as Virginians or South Carolinians, and second is Americans. And that was it took a long time before those attitudes changed. And so I think really this is more of a political question rather than a strictly legal look at what the Constitution says type question. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the text, I think the Constitution is pretty unambiguous that you've got a strong central government and that it is supreme. But people didn't necessarily have to agree with that. And they didn't agree with it. And so who were some of the major people on that side of the argument before the Civil War? Well, I think the uh, I think some of that argument comes from Jefferson and his allies, although not uh, not really in, in sort of full fledged form. Uh, I think John Calhoun was really. The, I was waiting for you to mention John yeah. C. Calhoun. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and today I'm speaking with Daniel Farber, who was the presenter at the annual R. Gerald McMurtry Lecture at Lincoln Memorial University. And he was telling us all about Abraham Lincoln and his effect on the Constitution, and also about some fellow named John C. Calhoun. We'll talk more about him after the break. <laughs> Cloudy day at Montpelier, out of the mists, strides a lone figure, the quiz guy, Doug Smith. How you doing, Doug? I'm doing great, Stuart. How are you? I'm doing extremely well. Always happy to be here at Montpelier. Still tingly about our new studios, which I'm enjoying so very, very much. And uh, very happy to be doing some more quizzes with you. Do we have a contestant? We do. Well, who's our contestant on the line? This is Michael McShritus. Michael Muscritus, and where are you calling from, sir? Tampa, Florida. Tampa, Florida? Yes. All the way down in Tampa, Florida. Well, we're just honored that you're listening to us, sir. Well, I'm uh, honored to be on the show. This is one of my favorite shows. When I'm in uh, Elk Park, North Carolina, I always listen to it. 
on WETS um, radio, oh, and I listen online. Well, I'm so very happy to do that. Well, Doug, do you have a good question? I do, Michael. I'm going to read you a question and give you four choices. Are you ready? Yes. Here we go. Which constitutional amendment ensures that your local sheriff won't secretly keep you in jail for years waiting for a trial? Which constitutional amendment ensures that your local sheriff won't secretly keep you in jail for years waiting for a trial? Is it A, the First Amendment, because, you know, it allows you to go to the press with your story? Mm -hmm. Is it B, the Second Amendment, because you have the right to bear arms even in prison? C, the Sixth Amendment, because you have the right to a speedy trial? Or is it the Ninth Amendment? just because it ain't in there. <laughs> okay, and the question Does it, is it right? was, um, again... Which constitutional amendment ensures that your local sheriff won't secretly keep you in jail for years waiting for a trial? Well, I would say it's the right to speedy trial. I think that's a very good answer. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> you didn't actually have to say the Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial guarantees you a speedy trial. Now, did you, Doug? I think you kind of gave that one away. Uh, well, I really just wanted to talk about the Sixth Amendment, <laughs> right? That everyone has a right to a speedy trial. I guess that's true. All Everybody right. knows the game here. Oh, okay. All right. Tremendous. Michael, right, you what? got it right. You got it right. How could you do that? That's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. Well, I was going to say the 14th Amendment, but... You know what? I'm guessing you're some kind of lawyer. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Why? Explain to us, Mike, why you wanted to, to talk about the 14th Amendment. Well, the 14th uh, as you remember, the, uh, <clears throat> the first uh, 10 amendments to the Constitution really didn't apply to the states. They only applied to the federal government. And then when uh, the... Um, after the Civil War and the 14th Amendment was passed, and over the years, the uh, Equal Protection Clause has been engrafted to cover state action. So if the, uh, if the sheriff acting under color of law falsely imprisons you, uh, you have certain rights. Right. I would I would simply uh, nudge it slightly a little way from that analysis. I think it's actually the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, yeah. which has been used as the vehicle to incorporate. But you're exactly right. So and especially since Doug's um, Doug's hypo involved a sheriff, which is a local official, That's part of the true. state government. That's true. It, it is ultimately the Sixth Amendment that guarantees a right to a speedy trial. But with regard to state officials, it's incorporated against the state officials by Section 1 of the 14th Amendment and specifically the Due Process Clause. So well caught there, sir. Well caught indeed. Wow. You know, this is the problem with lawyers. Uh-huh. They, just, they know law. They know the nuances. They know the nuances. That's right. It's Sixth Amendment. That's why we go to school for so long. Right to a speedy trial. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much, Michael. Send us a copy. Uh, excuse me. Send us your T-shirt size. Uh, you can send it. You can message us via Facebook, or you can send uh, it. Send us an email and uh, let us know your T-shirt size. We will put a T-shirt in the mail to you, along with a pocket Constitution from James Madison's historic home, Montpelier. Well, thank you. Thank you for playing, thank and thank right you, in. Doug. Hey, it's the Constitution. I read it for the articles. You're listening to your Weekly Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and this week my guest is uh, Professor Daniel Farber of the University of California at Berkeley, who gave the annual R. Gerald McMurtry Lecture at Lincoln Memorial University, all about Abraham Lincoln and the United States Constitution. Now, before the break, Dan was telling me about the various schools of constitutional interpretation that were extant before the Civil War, and it turns out that one of them, very much focused on states' rights and the support of slavery, was advocated by a fellow you may have heard of. Of named John C. Calhoun. I'm sure there are people who've heard of him but don't really know who he was. Who was this guy? John Calhoun from okay. South Carolina. Okay. He was uh, a senator. He was vice president at one point. Uh, but he uh, led the charge on behalf of South Carolina and other parts of the South to maintain what they saw as the crucial independence of the states from the federal government. And of course, there were a number of issues behind all of this, but slavery was a really critical one. I think 
there was a fear by the South that grew over time, but was there from the beginning that if the federal government was considered to be too strong and too powerful, it might interfere with slavery in the South. And there was this intense effort to protect against that kind of federal intrusion. Which is remarkable because the original text of the Constitution, though it never mentions the S word, slavery, is just chock full of provisions that protect it. I mean, the Fugitive Slave Clause, the Three-Fifths Clause, even the prohibition on amending the Constitution's protection of the slave trade for 20 years. I mean, that's the one provision of the original Constitution that could not be amended by its own terms, which is an extraordinary provision. And that was a provision protecting the slave trade for a period of time. So they'd already gotten a lot of concessions from the abolitionist crew. And yet you're telling me these Southerners... We're just worried in a, in a general way that if the federal government, if the national government becomes too strong, eventually they're going to take slavery away from us. I think that's right. Uh, and, and I think people like Lincoln, for example, agreed that the federal government had no power to abolish slavery mm-hmm. within the states under the Constitution. He never he didn't argue to the contrary. And in fact, up eve of the Civil War, he was emphasizing that he had no intention of doing that. But I think that Southerners felt that there were a number of indirect ways that the federal government could undermine slavery using other powers, uh, for example, by making slavery uneconomical through uh, uh, changing tariff rules and by putting limitations on the slave trade and allowing anti-slavery publications to come into the South. And I, I mean, in retrospect, I mean, we'll never know what would have happened to slavery ultimately if the South had not seceded. The other thing was that up until the Civil War, the South had had an enormous amount of con- uh, influence and control on the federal government. The majority of presidents were Southerners. The and slaveholders. And slaveholders. Right. Starting with, well, yeah. starting with Washington, for heaven's sake. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Supreme Court justices were <clears throat> often Southerners. The Congress was heavily represented with Southerners. So I think it was a shock with Lincoln's election when they felt that that kind of hold on the federal government was slipping away from them. So they just gotten very as some people will say, fat and happy. I mean, they were very satisfied with the way things had been, at least in terms of their control of the national government. But they had this concern in the back of their minds that one of these days, these one of these abolitionists would eventually start taking control of the federal government away from them. And Abraham Lincoln was, a, was the embodiment of that. I think so. And I think there was, I, I don't know if I would say fat and happy because I think there was a tremendous amount of anxiety uh, that you see and and fear of slave rebellions, of interference from the North, a real sense of insecurity that made them react so violently to the idea of having a, a president who was opposed to slavery. I'll agree with you on that. I think there was a huge amount of anxiety, and it's only something that I've become a little bit more aware of in the last few years. You mentioned slave rebellions. The Nat Turner Rebellion is something we've done an episode on. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's now a, a, a movie called, I think, Birth of a Nation, which is a fictionalization of that episode. That's something you have to remember is that I believe at the time of the Civil War, the population of South Carolina was almost half slave uh, or maybe even slightly more than half, right, right around half. And so when you think about that, I'm not, I'm not taking the side of the slave owners. I'm simply saying they had to be anxious. I mean, you've enslaved a whole group of people. People don't want to be slaves even if they've been raised as slaves. Um, And there was always that ever-present danger that they were going to rebel. You mentioned something else, abolitionist literature. There was a real clampdown. I want to talk about not having a First Amendment applying to you. The southern states had all kinds of restrictions on abolitionist uh, literature. They didn't want that to happen because, again, they were afraid it was going to lead to some sort of rebellion. Certainly, as they got closer to the Civil War, they had all sorts of restrictions on even letting slaves learn to read. They didn't want that to happen. And then there's the ever-looming problem that um, as new states enter the Union, are they going to be slave or are they going to be free? Because if you get ultimately a significant majority of free states, then you can amend the Constitution. If you can get three-quarters of the states out there that are willing to ratify something like the 13th Amendment, well, then by golly, slavery could be abolished even where it exists. So I guess those all were the sources of their anxiety leading up to the Civil War. Yeah, I think that the uh, states' rights vehicle provided a a kind of intellectual framework for them to uh, uh, defend what they saw was a potential threat to their interests. And Calhoun was very express about that. In fact, I think of all of the slave owners and all of the spokesmen of the Southern perspective, he was the most explicit. He was the one who called slavery not just 
something that it was regrettable but necessary, which was the standard line, he called it a positive good. Yeah, now one of the things about the period that's so interesting was uh, the way in which in the, in the period uh, from, say, 1800 up to the Civil War, uh, Southern views about slavery and Southern, the Southern legal system became more extreme, not less. Uh, well, they felt they were under threat. Yeah. It's like, you remember the old Soviet Union, right before it collapsed, they got more and more extreme. Uh, in their policies, and they had all these old guys that kept dying. <laughs> they kept, you know, they, they wanted the most conservative people. But I'm straying a little bit again, and uh, we've got to remember that we want to focus on Lincoln here. So I think now we've, we've laid out the pre-Civil War debate between the Lincoln view and between the John C. Calhoun and the Southern view. So then Lincoln gets elected in 1860, and here's this guy who's on the record saying that you know, the House divided against itself cannot stand, the, who doesn't like slavery, even though he will say, you know, I'm not talking about abolishing it where it exists. But he's pretty clear he doesn't like slavery. He gets elected. And what happens next? Well, what happens next is that the Deep South uh, secedes, led by South Carolina, but basically Gulf states mm -hmm. uh, at that time secede. The Upper South stays in the Union. And when he takes office, Lincoln is faced with an immediate. We talk. We use the phrase "constitutional crisis" these days, and we sort of bat it around. But <laughs> yeah, that was you know that was not, you know what we have today is nothing right. compa by comparison to that. And Lincoln was really faced with the question of what was he going to do? Was he going to defend federal property in the South, for example? A lot of places, the Confederates simply took over federal forts, federal munitions, seized them and took them over. But there were several, a couple at least, that were still not in Confederate hands and were still the property of the federal government. What was he going to do about that? And, of course, uh, Fort Sumter was the one that turned out to be the big flashpoint. In the port of the South, in, in Charleston. In Charleston. And it was Lincoln's decision that he was not going to surrender to the secessionist movement. Uh, he was going to maintain the supremacy of the federal government under the Constitution. And his view immediately after that, that as president, he had to take steps immediately to combat the threat to the Union uh, without waiting for Congress, which, of course, in those days would have taken a significant amount of time to get all the, they, you know, they weren't in session. They'd have to get all those people to take steamboats and horses and who knows what else to get back to Washington for Congress to even react. So he immediately took action, called up uh, troops under the Militia Act, took another a number of other immediate steps, some of which were not specifically authorized by statutes, but that he felt were necessary. Then at that point, the Upper South seceded to defend the, its uh, brethren, and we were off to the bloodiest war in American history. Yeah, you mentioned something there that uh, is another aspect of the pre-Civil War um, Constitution, is that Congress was part-time. And they weren't in session when a lot of these things happened. And Lincoln arguably didn't have the power to do a lot of the things he did. But I think he took the position, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, his ultimate his ultimate constitutional duty was to protect the Union, you know, preserve the Constitution. That's what it says in his oath, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And so he was going to act and get permission later. And by and large, he did, didn't he, when the Congress came back? Uh, he did when Congress came back, although in some cases it took quite a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, he um, suspended habeas corpus uh, initially just in a small area uh, from in Washington, Maryland, to keep the access to the Capitol open. But uh, uh, more broadly over time in the early period of the Civil War, and Congress eventually came in and ratified what he had done, but only... It wasn't right when they came back in session. It was quite a while later before they the got around to that. That's one of the most that you'll always hear people say that. You know, Lincoln was a tyrant. He suspended habeas corpus. So let's go back. Habeas corpus, sometimes called the ancient Brit, is uh, something that's very important to the liberty of Anglo-Americans. It mm -hmm. goes a long way back in, in at least it was in Magna Carta, wasn't it? It was certainly a, a very, very important concept. And in in, in an almost literal translation from, from the Latin is produce the body. So this is the power of a judge who's, at least in theory, independent of the executive to some extent, to say to the executive, um, you supposedly have this person in jail. Uh, 
produce him, bring him here, and now tell me, the judge, why you're holding him. And that's the point at which if the, if the executive can't justify holding a person, then the judge, at least in theory, will order him or, or her freed. Okay, so that's an extremely important check on what had been a long abuse of the executive, just putting people in prison and not charging them with anything, sort of a man with the iron mask sort of thing. That had been enshrined in our Constitution, and it was only supposed to be suspended in fairly specific places and times by Congress. But here comes the president and just suspends it. Now, the Constitution doesn't explicitly say that it's Congress that has the power to suspend. Mm -hmm. uh, it refers to suspension uh, under limited circumstances. I think those circumstances were present. Mm -hmm. But it's not at all clear that, uh, in general, the president has the power to suspend habeas corpus. And I guess if I were pushed to it, I would say, in general, I don't think the president does have that power. I think you can justify Lincoln's initial actions up to the time when Congress came into session, including suspension on the basis of the need to deal with an emergency when Congress was not available. But at some point, Congress is available, and it be that becomes an increasingly weaker argument. In a way, it's a bit of a moot question because uh, Congress did come in and retroactively ratify uh, what he had done up to that point. But that was certainly, uh, I think, of of his various actions, uh, that was probably the, the one that gets the most attention. Not to take Lincoln's part in this debate, but simply to note, Washington, D.C. is a southern city. Okay, it, it was carved out of Virginia and Maryland. So he had a slave state to his back. Now, Maryland stayed in the Union, as it, as it turned out. But what if Maryland had seceded? And if I recall correctly, my history, there was an assassination plot, or at least rumors of an assassination plot, when he was coming down the railroad uh, through Maryland through you know, to get to Washington, D.C. He felt he had a threat at his back, not just at his front. I mean, of course, Richmond is only you know, a ways down the road in Virginia. My understanding is the reason he wanted to suspend habeas corpus is he wanted to be able to round up the usual suspects and put them away just to make sure this didn't happen especially in the early months of the war. I think that uh, you're right about that. I think people forget how vulnerable Washington was. Yeah. Uh, the uh, only way to get troops to Washington in a practical way was through a railroad line that went through Baltimore. Right. There were uh, riots and uh, the, the troops had to march between two different train stations, one coming in and then the next one to go to Washington. They were attacked along the way. Uh, I, I think he had a... a I think that the situation was so urgent uh, and the possibilities that the, the capital uh, of the United States would be cut off were so severe uh, that I think he was entitled to, uh, to take the extreme step uh, in that emergency. I, I, as I say, I think at some point there was enough time for Congress to be involved. And after, as that happens, I think his suspension of habeas becomes more dubious. But they did eventually bless it uh, after the fact. You're listening to your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and I'm speaking with Dan Farber, who gave the R. Gerald McMurtry Lecture this year at Lincoln Memorial University, all about Abraham Lincoln and the Constitution. After the break, we'll finish our conversation with Dan Farber. Stick around. Now it's time to finish our conversation with Daniel Farber, a professor at Berkeley, who was the presenter at the annual R. Gerald McMurtry Lecture at Lincoln Memorial University. Uh, this year, Dan spoke about Abraham Lincoln and the Constitution. And before the break, he was telling us that he thinks that at least in certain circumstances, some of the extreme actions that Lincoln took at the outset of the Civil War, such as suspending habeas corpus, were actually justified. Of course, suspending habeas corpus was not the only extreme action that Abraham Lincoln took. The other thing I was going to say uh, that's also important, I think, for future history was that he uh, imposed a naval blockade on the South, 
which uh, under international law was an act of war. Uh, and so uh, essentially without waiting for a declaration of war or other action by Congress, uh, he officially involved the U.S. in a war. And that is certainly the president's power to take actions like that has and, and to begin uh, military uh, operations uh, without congressional consent has been something we've really been fighting over ever since. Now, wouldn't the argument be that they fired on us? I mean, the South did quite ceremoniously, you know, fire the first shot at Fort Sumter. So it's pretty clear they fired the first shot. So we're under attack. Doesn't the president always have the power to respond to attacks? Well, that's what the Supreme Court uh, said mm -hmm. uh, in, in considering the legality of the blockade, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, uh, he wasn't making a war. He was simply recognizing the fact that it already existed mm -hmm. uh, and that he had the power to, at that point, to to uh, move on to a wartime footing and, and proceed. But that was very controversial. There, the Supreme Court was sharply divided about that. And uh, presidents ever since have been uh, taking steps uh uh, I think we both remember the Vietnam era where yes. uh, the, the war was well underway, really, before Congress was ever asked to to uh, supply its approval. There were controversies with the uh, uh, Iraq war about whether the president would would needed and would get congressional approval for the second war. There are bigger fights today. Uh, I just read in the paper the other day, Dan, we are now bombing seven different countries. I'm not aware that we're actually at war with any of them. Now, some of them arguably are covered under the, you know, the, the authorization for use of military force that Congress passed back after 9-11, arguably, but places like Yemen that are, you know, were not even under consideration back then, and they're, we're bombing now. Places like Libya, I think we did some air campaigns, places like Syria. Um, yeah, and the president is doing all these things. And again, I'm not taking sides, but... The idea of executive power and the ability to respond to a threat can be taken and run with, and arguably later presidents have run with it. I, I think later presidents certainly have, mm -hmm. whether for better or for worse. Yeah. But I think that, uh, uh, I mean, you saw this a little bit with the Mexican-American War even earlier, where- 1845. Yeah, yeah. where, where uh, Polk- uh, really <laughs> provoked the the war. Didn't if he just didn't march actually people start up it. and down on the border, basically. Yeah, basically the, yeah. In, in in territory that the Mexican government claimed was theirs, and right. then eventually think something broke out. Uh, but what Lincoln did, I think, was even more forthright. He didn't, you know, he he moved. Yeah, blockade is a pretty aggressive move. Yeah, I mean that's your lifeblood. Yeah, right. I mean that the South basically made all of its money by exporting stuff, notably cotton, but other crops as well, and then importing manufactured goods. I mean, that was their whole economy. And when you blockade them, that's a big deal. It okay. Is, so yeah. that's the other thing Lincoln did. Well, what else did he do that was so controversial or that changed the Constitution? Uh, well, I suppose the single biggest thing he did was the Emancipation Proclamation. There's that. Yes. Uh, Tell us about that. So that, uh, I think, was um, certainly the most... Um, powerful assertion of presidential power uh, that the country had ever seen and maybe that it ever has seen. Uh, after we had this institution in the South that had been recognized in the Constitution that had billions and billions of dollars uh, worth of value as property, and the president, um, with a stroke of the pen, declared it invalid. That uh, is extraordinary. I've heard it said that land and slaves were the two biggest sources of wealth in the South, and that slaves actually was more valuable. Okay, this, you know, it, it's always painful and morally repugnant to talk about human beings as property. It really is. Um, nonetheless, we have to recognize the dark history and the fact that our Constitution protects property. The Fifth Amendment protects property, that the federal government can't take property without paying just compensation. And these were considered property. Slavery was protected in the original Constitution. And yet, as you say, with the stroke of a pen, President Lincoln took that property away from the slave owners in the at least the rebelling states. 
What's up with that? How could he do that? Well, I actually think uh, he had a legal theory about how he could do that that I think was actually valid. Mm -hmm. uh, so his theory was uh, that he had no power to uh, uh, change the property laws of the states, including slavery, um, under normal circumstances, but that uh, as the commander in chief, if abolishing slavery was a military necessity uh, in order to win the war, that that was an, an inherent power. Uh, and I think he was uh, he was taking it to a level that hadn't been seen before. But in fact, there was a considerable amount of precedent uh, f uh, about the power uh, of military commanders to seize or destroy enemy property. Contraband. Uh, contraband. Contraband of war, right? In yeah. fact, that's how it came up, wasn't it? I mean, earlier in the war, in the first few months and in years of the war, um, the North would c come into a certain area and there would be the slaves. Well, the slaves would, of course, want to be free. They would sometimes come to the Union lines. Well, the commanders just started accepting them because if I send them back, they're just going to start producing more war material for the South. So even if you're only looking at them as property, well, then I'm seizing property that would otherwise be used to fight the United States. And so that was it was happening at a local level or sort of just as a natural product of war. And so he used his commander in chief authority, which is in Article two. So he's got a textual basis. And then perhaps beyond that, the, the idea of inherent executive authority to say, OK, we're at war. You're using these slaves against us. We're going to seize them. Exactly. And uh, I, I think that I, I think that that is actually just as a legal matter, very plausible. Yeah, it argument. strikes me that way, too. Uh, but uh, it is given the enormous scale of what was done and how fundamental that institution was to the South. It was really taking that, you know, taking that argument to a, an entirely new level. But he was scrupulous about not freeing slaves in the loyal states, right? Right. So slavery continued to exist in Maryland or in Kentucky or in Missouri. They had not seceded. Yeah. And that's one thing that people often uh, have accused him of hypocrisy for not. Uh, I think somebody said, well, he only abolished slavery where he didn't have any actual power <laughs> not at in the, moment, the South perhaps. and uh, didn't do it in the North where he did have power. But I think legally uh, he really only had the power to do it. Uh, in the South. Um, There's a great story, too, about the practical politician. You again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard from another guest some years back that when a delegation came to him and said, Mr. Lincoln, if you if, if you free slaves within the loyal states, uh, God will be on your side. And his response supposedly was, well, I would love to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. I, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I often think about that. Yeah, he had, I mean, he couldn't just start doing that because then Kentucky would probably have seceded and Missouri and perhaps Maryland. So he really was treating slaves in the loyal states differently from slaves in the rebelling states. That's right. And in fact, if he had tried to do this earlier in the war, he might not have been able to hold those states. He really didn't. Uh, even consider taking this action right. until he was confident that he did have Kentucky, right. basically. Right, until the war was more closer to being won anyway. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Well, clearly he was doing some remarkable things, and I think it's fair to say that in some, all of these things enormously increased executive power. I think the columnist and historian George Will has said that every president comes in, that the presidency is like a baseball glove. And every president puts his hand in there, and, and when they have the excuse, they stretch out that glove. Well, then the glove comes back after they pull their hand back, but it's always stretched out a little bit more. <laughs> and Lincoln had very big hands. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He had a great big guy with great big hands, and he stretched that glove. Um, okay, but then, of course, obviously, the war itself and its aftermath led to those um, constitutional amendments that you mentioned. So is that is that the next thing that Lincoln did, or is there more that he did directly while he was president? Well, while he was president, uh, he was heavily involved in uh, the uh, passage of the 13th Amendment, right. abolishing slavery. Uh, he, um, well, he and others were always concerned that the Emancipation Proclamation might not be a complete solution. Uh, first of all, because it didn't reach all parts of the United States. Second, it was a wartime effort, and nobody really knew what would happen 
after the war was over? Does mm-hmm. that just go away? But, you know, what happens to people who were freed? Do they go back to being slaves? Nobody really was 100% sure of the legalities. Uh, and so he thought it was crucial to – and, of course, the Southerners might regain control of Congress and sure. who knows what they might do. But you don't want to give up something. Wartime measures often get reversed when yeah. peace comes back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so he was very strongly concerned with passage of the 13th Amendment and he um, – in fact, there was a movie about that just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Was that accurate? Um, as as, did you see it? I did see it. Um, and – from what I've read, it was by and large accurate with a little, you know, as usual, they take a little bit of liberty. Sometimes they merge two separate incidents or two separate characters right. into one because it has to fit within the, uh, you know, the space of, uh, of uh, time and that's uh, available in a movie. But by and large, I think it was right. And I think, again, it also showed his pragmatism and his willing to make deals and do whatever he had to do right. in order to get it passed. <clears throat> Uh, he was not there for the passage of the 14th or 15th Amendments. He had already uh, – uh, those uh, were later developments. But uh, I think, as you were indicating, I think that the Gettysburg Address, re- in talking about government of the people, by the people, and for the people, that looks forward to voting rights. And in talking about uh, conceived in liberty mm-hmm. – um, I think that you see the idea of due process, protection of liberty, and then uh, it's an incredible document. Equality, it's so eloquent, yeah. it's so beautiful. I actually offered both of my boys when they were younger. I said, "I give you fifty bucks, cash money, if you memorize the entire Gettysburg Address," and they got close. And so, boys, the offer's still open. It's still worth memorizing. At the very least, it's worth reading because even though it's not part of the Constitution, it's one of those documents that really shows you where the values were of that particular president. And it's very nationalistic of the people, by the people, for the people. Right. It, it really encapsulates in very few words his entire constitutional vision. It does. And in some ways that are kind of subtle. So uh, when he says four score and seven years ago, our forefathers, uh, people, I think, tend to think he meant uh, the adoption of the Constitution mm-hmm. in 1789 was when they established a nation. But a- a- if you do the math, actually, four score and seven years ago was not 1789. It was 1776. Mm-hmm. And what he meant was that the Declaration of Independence and the act of declaring independence immediately uh, created a nation, not just a confederacy. And, All men are created equal, yeah. right in the preamble to the Declaration. Yeah. Right. And that, and and he saw in many ways that it was the Declaration that was really the, the foundational uh, uh, document of America, right. and that the Constitution was really um, uh, an effort to uh, turn some of those fundamental principles of the Declaration into a working uh, um, mechanism of government. But that the you know that what made America America was not the Constitution; it was all men are created. Isn't it, isn't it remarkable? I, you know, we've made the point on this show many times, and I will make it to my students as well, that the Declaration is not the Constitution. It's not law. Uh, but that doesn't in any way, shape, or form denigrate it. I mean, it is, uh, in, in many respects, the, 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 the birth certificate for a nation, and it is a statement of some of our most profoundly held values. And to the extent that we take the Declaration or the Gettysburg Address um, and use them and to interpret the Constitution, that's perfectly legitimate. It's perfectly legitimate. And we have to remember that. And that was Lincoln's whole perspective, wasn't it? Is it don't start in 1787, go back to the beginning. Right. And and that's and I think it was that attitude. Uh, if you look at the de- uh, debates on the uh, 1865 Civil Rights Act and then on the 14th Amendment, uh, they are uh, replete with references to the Declaration of Independence. Uh, as one of the foundations for what the 14th Amendment was doing. Uh, Congress, uh, uh, Lincoln was very much in tune with the uh, uh, Republican Party, uh, and the Republican Party was really, uh, for practical purposes, the same thing as Congress Mm -hmm. uh, during much of this period because the South wasn't setting senators or representatives anymore so that what was left were the representatives of northern and western states and there was a 
heavy Democrat, uh, Republican majority there. And he he really spoke for the party. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't there were people in the party who were more radical. There were people more conservative. But he was really, uh, I think, uh, the the um, voice of the Republican Party during that period. Right. And in fact, that's really the that answers the question. How could the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments ever even be ratified? It's much easier to ratify uh, when you've eliminated opposition or if they've eliminated themselves by seceding from the nation. Okay, it was much easier to get three quarters of the remaining states. Uh, well, although in fact that's not what they did, uh-huh. uh, uh, at least for the fourteenth. That was 15th. later, right? Yeah. Uh, they, uh, in fact, by then the federal government had organized new governments in the South, uh, sometimes under what amounted to military command, mm-hmm. uh, and those governments then ratified. Right. Uh, That's another great way to get a a constitutional amendment. Simply go in, take over the state, establish your own government, and then ratify uh, what you want done. That's right. Yeah. All joking aside, I mean, that's, of course, what many people in the South still resent is that period of military rule we often call Reconstruction after. But that explains how these amendments were able to be enacted, even after Abraham Lincoln was dead. It was his party still firmly in control. And um, that's how these amendments came about. I think that's right. I think that's right. And I, I think you can't really separate this whole period from the war itself mm-hmm. uh, that, it, you know, it was I, I had a um, colleague uh, when I was at the University of Minnesota uh, who used to say that the principle of national supremacy was established in the famous case of Grant versus Lee at a Appomattox <laughs> courthouse. Exactly. That was the decision. Well, I think in, in, in point of fact, it is actually true. I hate to say this, Dan, but we are running very short on time now. So any grand thoughts, any grand summation about Lincoln and the Constitution? Uh, I, I just have to say that uh, Lincoln is uh, himself such a remarkable figure. Mm-hmm. And in thinking about these uh, issues, one of my major struggles was always to fight the impulse to say, well, it must be right. Mr. Lincoln said it. <laughs> <laughs> That's very difficult. I, did, I, I do have one last question before we leave. Now, we already talked about the movie Lincoln, and you think that was more or less, mm-hmm. with, with Hollywood caveats, uh, accurate. The one I really want to hear about, the movie I want to hear about, is was it accurate in Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer? Was that, was that historically based? <laughs> <laughs> well, those archives are secret. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan Farber of the University of California at Berkeley's Law School, thanks so very much for coming on our show today. Thank you for having me. And that's our show. Thanks so very much to Dr. Daniel A. Farber, the show Sato Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley. Thanks also to Dr. Charles Hubbard, the director of the Abraham Lincoln Institute for the Study of Leadership, under whose auspices we have our annual McMurtry Lecture at Lincoln Memorial University. Our executive producer is Wayne Winkler. Our scheduler is Carol Hutchinson. Our music is by the fifes and drums of Colonial Williamsburg. My name is Stuart Harris, and remember, you are a part of the American experiment.